This podcast is produced for and by North Memorial Health Ambulance Service for the sole purpose of educating its clinical team members. This does not constitute online medical control or medical advice. To access the North Memorial Health Ambulance Service guidelines, go to acidremap.com backslash sites backslash North Memorial. Well, if Alex and I could stop laughing at each other, maybe we would finally record this podcast. Anyways, hey everybody, this is Zach and uh, Alex here recording another guideline update, this time talking about a uh, unfortunately not so upbeat topic uh, about field death. Yeah, I mean, it's important work, but I think to add a little levity to the situation, Zach, I'm just curious, what is your favorite album of all time and why is it by Phil Collins? I almost feel personally attacked, but you're wrong. For the first time ever, you are wrong about me. It is not that album. I think I, I think I know what the answer is going to be, but go ahead. I'm curious. No, no. Now you have to tell me what you think it's going to be. Is actually. it College Dropout? Alex and I were having a discussion about Kanye West and the rise and fall of Kanye West. He goes by yay now. <laughs> and so now Alex thinks that all of his albums are my favorite albums of all time. While My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy is amazing, it is not my favorite album. Favorite album is Led Zeppelin 2. That's good. Like, I, you caught me off guard. Good. I was like, maybe it's the Marshall Mathers LP. Like, I don't know. Wow. You you pigeonholed me, Alex. I did pigeonhole you. <laughs> yeah. And I'm I'm not offended by it at all. Uh, all right. So. Well, no, 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 no. We're not moving on yet. What is yours, Alex? The answer to that is the Nashville Sound by Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, which is a folk album and nobody is going to go listen to it. That sounds like something you would say. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Out of the two of us, like one of us has a weird, wispy beard and the other one of us is Zach. You haven't seen my beard. Admittedly, it wasn't that weird or wispy. Was but. it when you had an afro? No, it was after that. I okay. lost the hair on top and grew it on my face. <laughs> no, COVID lost my beard, unfortunately. So 20 or so people here have asked now if we could just have a picture of you with very tall hair as uh, just available to us. And just available as a, the first item on every podcast. Having not met your wife previously, I'm just going to ask her, like, do you have any pictures of Zach as a teenager? This is why I don't friend request anybody on. Let's talk about the field death guideline, which was previously called withholding of resuscitation, which was not a good name. This is the guideline that you would use to say, we're not going to start resuscitation on somebody. This is not the guideline you would use to say, I've made it 30 minutes through my cardiac arrest and now I'm deciding whether or not I should call it. We will be moving that into the cardiac arrest guideline so that you don't have to flip through a bunch of pages. These are the the patients that have a zero or next to zero percent chance of survivability. I want to start with a general disclaimer that if you show up on a call and you're not entirely sure what has happened, we want you to begin resuscitation uh, and gather more information. Don't, I, I, man, it seems super silly to be like, don't everybody just stand around and try and figure out what happened. But we have to put disclaimers like that in sometimes, and and it's for good reason. Anyways, to add to what Alex is saying, if you are at all questioning what's happening or or if this is a person you should start resuscitation on, you should start resuscitation and get more information. So this guideline is broken up into really a total of three boxes. The first one is no need to place a monitor, no need to begin resuscitation. These are patients that you really don't even need to call for a time of death unless there's a specific reason that somebody's asking for one. I'm reminded early in my career when I worked in St. Croix County in Wisconsin, they had a policy that we had to call for a time of death no matter what. 
These are the patients who are under North Memorial's guidelines. You don't need to call for a time of death. You don't need to call med control. These are people that have a 0% chance of resuscitation or have wishes that they would not want to be resuscitated. And I want to further talk about this and state that very clearly that every patient we're talking about in the rest of this guideline update and throughout this guideline are are people who are in cardiac arrest. They do not have a pulse. They are currently dead. This guideline is very specifically for patients that were in cardiac arrest prior to the arrival of North Memorial EMS. Correct. Correct. So the first category, as this protocol goes, the ones that are more obvious, these are the patients that you can check a pulse if they are dead and they do not have a pulse. These are patients that we do not start resuscitation on. Some of the ones that many of you have heard before are rigor mortis. And this is not just the jaw clenching. Sometimes you could get to a cardiac arrest and patient might have a clenched jaw because they might not fully be in cardiac arrest yet. So this is a patient that might have a clenched jaw, but but their arms are stiff, their uh, their knees are stiff, their legs are stiff. They're clearly gone into rigor mortis throughout most of their body. Yeah, it's one of those patients where you try and move one part of them and multiple parts have to move in order for it to, to be. And we do maybe about 50 times a year have patients where the CPR is so effective that patients will clench their jaw because we're perfusing their brain pretty well. You guys will be able to tell the difference, right? And that's so that was one of the things we wanted to be really particular about. And then dependent lividity is next, Zach. Yeah. So dependent lividity, this is when there's a clear change in this color of their skin. You can see some of the blood pooling on the more. This can happen somewhat quickly. This might be happening a little bit in 20 to 30 minutes. But if you see a patient and their bottom half that is closer to the ground, how do I even phrase this? I, I think saying the side that's closest to the ground is probably the best option. I, I can think of patients that had like fallen out of bed and were stuck between their their dresser and their bed and their left arm was like purple to black and their right side looked totally fine. And when a lot of people think of lividity, which informally is called pooling, you'll think back, buttocks, back of the head, back of the neck. Really what it is is wherever gravity had the greatest impact on where they're laying. Is that fair enough? Yep. And what that really indicates is that there has been no circulation. So the blood is just going to wherever gravity pulls it to and is not being circulated by any cardiac activity. Lividity can look anything from like a fresh bruise to like really, really dark, deep purple. So look very carefully and make sure you find it. And it's often going to be accompanied by something else. The patient's oh, yeah. going to feel cold. They're going to have some rigor on board. It most usually won't be in isolation. We had recorded this with Pete previously, and, and we had to make some changes to the guidelines. We're recording this again. Pete mentioned these are the people that would you would look at. They look deceased. They look waxy or pale, or they look... Perfect. Thanks, Alex. The yeah. next one is you go to a house when it's a welfare check. No one's heard from this person for a while, and you walk in, and the patient... No one has seen them for a couple days, and they are on the ground, and it's a warm house. The heating is still working, and their trunk is cold. And so we consider a cold trunk in a warm environment in somebody who is in cardiac arrest as a sign of um, obvious sign of death, excuse me. The important thing there is if any of you have a partner like I have, my wife's hands are cold every every second of every day. And if you grab somebody like, oh, their hands are cold – that's not good enough. We're talking about even under the blankets, they're at room temperature kind of a thing, right? And again, it should be something that's tactile to you, right? Not I'm shocky and cool, but I am cold to the touch. Yeah. It's very obvious. And unfortunately, this is one of those ones that if you've ever 
touched a person who's been deceased for a long time, once you have that feeling and how their skin feels and the temperature of their skin, it's a very clear. Yeah. And generally, these are the ones that our telecommunicators will pick up on too. It's one of the questions that that patients, that people get asked when they call 911. The next one is kind of the extension of that for people who are even colder. So we have some patients who might be in cardiac arrest and be cold that would require resuscitation. However, if you get on scene to somebody and their trunk is frozen, so if you are at the stage where you need to start CPR and you can't because their entire trunk is completely frozen solid, don't start resuscitation on those patients. These are the patients where you might see like icicles forming in their airway or hanging from their skin. What I think of when I think of this is we've been out looking for this person for a day and their chest wall is so cold from being outside in cold weather that even if we tried to do chest compressions, we would actually be damaging the structure. They are frozen. Right. It's interesting. We were both like, ah, this one won't take very long. And now we're describing what does frozen mean? The other one that has an obvious sign of death here would be somebody who's gotten who has obvious state of decomposition. Yeah, animal predation as well, right? That would count. Otherwise, if they have a valid pulse or a DNR, I'm talking signed paperwork that's handed to you, say, hey, they just went into cardiac arrest. Here's their paperwork. They don't want to be resuscitated. And from a regulatory perspective, because everybody loves it when I talk about regulations, in Minnesota... In Minnesota, it's just the pulsed form, okay? Physician orders for life-sustaining treatment is what that stands for. Somebody that has, I don't wish to be resuscitated on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper that they signed is not a valid pulsed in the state of Minnesota. In the state of Wisconsin, assisted living and nursing home residents can purchase a bracelet for five bucks that says do not resuscitate and we would honor those. However, again, you're looking for a valid pulsed or DNR form. Any doubt in your mind, just start really limited resuscitation, which we'll talk about here in a minute, and call a doc and say, hey, this person wouldn't want this, but their DNR is not valid. I just need to run it by somebody. The other categories in this block are injuries that are incompatible with life. So if you get on scene and there is a patient who has been decapitated, they have separation of their abdomen or their torso. Those are patients that we do not need to start resuscitation on. If they are in cardiac arrest, that's unfortunately the end of their life. And Zach, this is also for partials, right? So if somebody is mostly hemisected or mostly decapitated, I'm, I'm reminded of a call I had when you were a fellow at Regions where we reached behind and felt this person's neck and it was just dust. He's nodding. He's like, the actual medical term is either hemisected or vivisected. We're going to leave that out of this guideline. Somebody that loses a leg can survive and have a very good quality of life. Somebody that doesn't have organs that with which to digest food does not have a survivable injury. The other patients that we will not be starting CPR on or resuscitation on are patients who have a drowning event and their downtime has been more than one hour. Like and verified. Verified yeah went underwater an hour and 15 minutes ago. We saw them go under and we pulled them out an hour and 15 minutes later and they're in cardiac arrest. And be aware here that we are not talking about warm water, cold water here. We're not specifying. So anybody who's been underwater for over an hour and they're in cardiac arrest, we do not start resuscitation on. The the chance of survivability after, after 60 minutes is essentially zero. In cold water drownings, the risk is even if they are successfully resuscitated, they're at a very, very high risk for fulminate pulmonary edema and resuscitation. Uh, lung compliance becomes this big issue. So even if they are successfully resuscitated, their overall chance of survivability is all but zero. Again, feel empowered to say this person's been under the water for more than an hour. We're not even going to start. And the last person from this first box 
our patients, if you are in a, a mass casualty incident, an MCI, and they're tagged black, those are patients that if they're in cardiac arrest, unfortunately, that means they've passed away. An MCI is different for everybody, right? What would happen if you were at Penn and Lowry, which is four blocks from the hospital, versus if you're in, in Wolf Lake Township west of Park Rapids, an MCI is very different. You guys have to have that kind of clinical judgment to say a resource is not going to be available for this person and we're going to have to triage, we're going to have to sort them to expect interdeceased. And it's hard. I, I, I've done it a few times. I, I've had one case where we had three fatalities out of 12 patients on an accident that happened right in front of us in the ambulance. It's hard to say there's no saving this person. That is going to give the next person the better chance of survival. Exactly. Thank you, Al. That's a tough situation to be in and not starting resuscitation on somebody you might have beforehand in a different situation is really difficult. But as Alex states, you're going to be doing the most help for the greater good in that situation. So onto the next box, it's a small box here. It's just one thing. Yeah, One thing. So this one reads, if medical or trauma with known downtime of greater than 30 minutes. So if you get on scene and you've had first responders on scene have been working a cardiac arrest for 30 plus minutes by the time you get there. There's terrible weather. You couldn't get there. They're super out in the country, whatever it is. And you get there and they've been working at verified cardiac arrest for 35 minutes. You put your cardiac monitor on that patient and they are an asystole. You do not need to continue resuscitation at that stage. And your your focus then becomes caring for the family and saying, you know, at, at this point, they're they're beyond help uh, and, and giving them those that feedback. That's it for that box. Uh, the next box is when we begin limited resuscitation. And then you call Pete, Pat, myself, or medical control to talk to us. And limited resuscitation here, what we really mean is CPR, get them on the monitor, use your AED if you're a, a, an AED only crew, and maybe put in an OPA and do BVM ventilations. This is not, this is somebody where resuscitation is likely futile. But we don't want you guys to be the only people to make that decision. We want you to make that decision in conjunction with one of our physicians. And Alex talked about one of these situations earlier. So say you go to a call, the person is in cardiac arrest, and family is there saying they don't want to be resuscitated here. They wouldn't want this, but they don't have a valid post or DNR around. That's one of the situations where you get us on the phone quickly. We can help navigate that situation. We can talk to family with you guys and make sure we come to an agreement all the while, you guys are still doing your BLS resuscitation procedures. Yeah. And then the same is true for an incomplete post. Uh, and then the other one, the one that I think of a lot is we're taking somebody home from the hospital to go home for hospice and they aren't enrolled in hospice until they get home, which is a, a law thing. It's a regulatory thing. And they die on the way. Get pull over. You can do CPR for a couple of minutes. We get a doctor on the phone and say, we were taking this person home to die and they just didn't make it. Those things do happen, and they they can be hard. I mean, and that's written in the guideline as expected death due to terminal illness. So somebody who is expected to die, but they for some reason don't have that valid pulse or DNR form. Get us on the phone. We're happy to help you navigate the situation. Yeah, and then the last one here, and I need you to kind of close your eyes and think about it. PEA at a rate of less than forty. We would normally call this agonal rhythm or a terminal rhythm. But what I want you to think of is if you looked at it and thought, if this person had a pulse, I would be very concerned at this cardiac rhythm. The same is true if they're in PEA, not a perfusible rhythm, even if they did have a pulse, right? So these are the patients that have next to no chance of survivability. Their heart is just getting rid of the last bits of electrical activity that it has left. 
but it's a little harder to say this is PEA. We're not going to start compared to like asystole, right, Zach? This is very similar to the box above with the asystole, but it's just not quite asystole yet. This is, like Alex was saying, a rhythm that we think is probably incompatible with life or any type of perfusion. But because it's not quite as clear as true asystole, just get us on the phone. Tell us what you're seeing. We'll talk through the situation. And that might mean that we are going to uh, withhold any further resuscitation. And this is one of those things too. And it's calling for medical control is kind of an art more than it is a science. Calling and saying, hey, I'm calling for a time of death on somebody who's in PEA at a rate of 40 is different than saying I'm calling for somebody that has had a prolonged downtime. We can't verify exactly how long. They're in an agonal rhythm. The patient is starting to get cool to the touch. You need to sell the idea not of I don't want to start resuscitation, but of I think that the effort here is futile. Is that fair? And that the person has been, you believe, been down for a significant time. And ideally, this is like the asystole where you have a verified downtime of 30 minutes before you get there. And we picked 30 minutes, not because there's some magic thing that happens after 30 minutes, but because it's an easy timeline, right? It's something you can say, oh, okay, it's two o'clock now. Did you see them at 1.30? No. Okay. And then next is trauma. And here's the deal with this part of the trauma guideline. These are the ones where the patient has a next to no percent chance of survivability, but there may be something to consider that you're you're just not thinking of that you maybe want to talk to a doc about. So, Zach, um, let's start with catastrophic burns, which feels very vague but is is intentional. Yeah, this is a very vague term, catastrophic burns, but this isn't a catastrophic burns that is still breathing and talking to you, right? This is a catastrophic burn who is already in cardiac arrest. And I think this is just realizing that somebody who has had that significant amount of burns, their heart has already stopped for whatever reason – any chance for getting them back, and if you get them back, the chance that they will succumb to the burns very quickly is is exceptionally high to the point that starting resuscitation probably isn't right, but again, not a decision you should be making on your own. And so again, if you get onto seed and this person has a cardiac arrest and catastrophic burns, do your basic resuscitation and get one of us on the phone so we can talk through the situation, decide is this somebody we should be moving forward on or is this somebody that we can terminate resuscitation. The other categories here would be penetrating trauma to the abdomen specifically with PEA or asystole. And the thought process here, this is different than the penetrating trauma to the chest with PEA, right? Those patients probably need at least needle decompression or some other intervention. So this is trauma to the abdomen with PEA or asystole. The thought process being that this is somebody who's probably bled out. And maybe we just can't see it, right? They bled into their belly. Yeah. And not only can we not see it, there's nothing we can really do in the field to, to fix this. Next up is warm water drownings greater than 30 minutes, but less than an hour. Okay. So a warm water drowning greater than 30 minutes has next to no chance of survival as well. But we want you to, again, at least get started and try and gather some more information, right? Because when you think about, we saw them go in the water and it was about 30-ish minutes ago, not it was about an hour ago. There's a chance that they struggled for a bit. They still had some oxygen reserves. A cold water drowning, you even have a little bit more time. That's why it doesn't say 30 minutes for cold water. It just says the hour hard line. That's why it's warm water drowning, right? Again, drowning victims have a very long road to recovery, and conservative resuscitation is appropriate. Next category here are some open injuries, so open brain injuries, open chest wall injuries, or eviscerations in patients who have already experienced cardiac arrest. Who are in cardiac arrest. Yeah, that was exactly what I was going to say. Those are patients that we should get us on the phone. You can start your basic stuff, 
talk to us on the phone and that we would probably terminate resuscitation at that time. These patients, if they're already in cardiac arrest, have a very low to zero chance for survivability and an even lower chance for even. These are patients who have a low to no chance for any survival and basically a 0% chance for any meaningful survival. The open brain injury is probably the most obvious out of all of these in terms of you can tell what's kind of a catastrophic versus not necessarily catastrophic injury in terms of is there a small amount of brain matter or is it everywhere? You guys all heard Zach. Alex, talk about an open chest wall. Specifically, what we're talking about here is an injury in which ribs are displaced and you can see into the chest cavity. Not, I got sliced open with a knife and I can see between the ribs, but there's actually a, a structural injury to the wall of the chest that would either prohibit you from doing effective CPR or that would have caused enough damage to the underlying structures to not be survivable. Um, eviscerations, again, when there are when there's bowel outside of the abdominal wall yeah. and they are in cardiac arrest, call us on the phone and likely we'll be terminating resuscitation. The other, the last two here, so blunt trauma in which a patient is in PEA with a rate of less than 40. Again, this is another indication that they probably had internal hemorrhage that you just can't see that is incompatible with life. Uh, these are, these are again, the patients that were probably just arriving in a very timely fashion too. And again, close your eyes and think of what agonal looks like to you. Not organized, agonal. The last one is one that's unfortunately a little bit different depending on where you work. So if you work in the metro and you go to a call where somebody had an injury to their brachial artery and they have bled out, and by the time you get there, they're in a PEA arrest or an asystolic arrest, and you're five minutes or less from the hospital, it's probably best to go to the hospital really quickly, right? Put your tourniquet on, get some fluids going, go to the hospital as fast as possible, right? But if you are working in Walker and you go to that same call and AC is 30 minutes out at best and it's going to be 20 to 30 minutes to any hospital and they are already in cardiac arrest from their exsanguination, I would get us on the phone and talk through the situation. But that person, unfortunately, has probably passed away and there's nothing we can do to get them back. Yeah. And AC in this case is not anacubitum, it's air care, right? And and even still, they have limited blood product, right? They they might have one unit of whole blood or two packed red blood cells. And that for some people is, is absolutely positively not going to be enough. However, if somebody, some traumatic epistaxis in which they lose a pulse, but you're in the parking lot of the, they were trying to walk themselves into the hospital and you're in the parking lot, bring them in. Don't even call, like just drive them to the door. Correct. Yeah. So to summarize, there are a lot of intricacies in this guideline, some of which are very clear, some of which require a little more detail at which you can read the page two guidelines to get some of those insights. But in general, we want you to feel comfortable in these obviously very deceased patients that you can not begin resuscitation. And then if there's any question at all for anything else, get us on the phone. We're happy to talk through those situations. So on to page two, which Zach just mentioned, you'll notice it's pretty brief. That there's no report to give to the hospital. There's no transport code three if, because this is really a guideline in which the the onus of us as providers is on supporting the people around us and not necessarily the decedent. So the HPI, you'll notice time of injury, downtime if it's known, pulse status, pre-existing HPI. If it's a car accident, if it's trauma, a detailed mechanism. Those are the things you need to know to make an informed decision, right? And then one piece that 
Pete brought up when we initially recorded this that's really great insight into the situation is so much of this, and we talked about this on the page too, on these patients who are very clearly deceased already is kind of managing, supporting the family and the other responders on scene. And sometimes that, and sometimes that might not be mean just going up, feeling a pulse and saying, we're not, we're done here, right? That might be going up, doing a patient assessment with feeling for a pulse, use a stethoscope, listen to breath sounds or heart sounds, right? And talking to family about, and the supporters about what you're seeing and what's making you think that this person has passed away. Just about everybody will have a story of a time where they showed up and a bystander was doing CPR and somebody that was very obviously deceased. And sometimes you'll get a little swept up in that moment of of this person just put a lot of effort in or whatever the case is. It, this is your opportunity to be the the medical professional on the scene, right? Thank you, Alex. Yeah. And that's what we got for this guideline update. The treatment plans on this one just explains to you that if if somebody says, hey, you got to call for a time of death, go ahead and do so, but you don't need to start resuscitation. You just call. And, and that's where you very specifically say, like you call North and say, hey, um, our, per our protocols, this person does not have a survivable injury. I'm just calling because we need to have a time of death on file. And the docs generally will not question that because they aren't actually being involved in terms of a, a clinical decision-making process. They're just saying it's 1401 or whatever. So. And that's going to do it for this episode of Northcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you real soon.